don't be afraid to go against the grain a little bit and be a part of the culture change too so that the next generation of physicians that come up can have it a little bit easier, that they may not have to jump through the same hurdles that we have had to jump through, that they don't have to be subjected to the same types of maybe treatment and things that we have been subjected to without having the appropriate training and guidance in that regard. Be a fantastic doctor, be a fantastic mentor, sponsor, and leader, but also be about the change too. Do the work because it's gonna take all of us. This episode, we interview Dr. Carla Williams and Dr. Keandra Titer. They are assistant professors of internal medicine at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. They are passionate about diversity, equity, and inclusion, and both work to design initiatives that are curriculum focused on recruitment, education, and community building. This includes the AIR initiative, which we discuss in this episode. In this episode, we discuss creating a welcoming culture in medicine and working to drive cultural change through seeking to understand others. Welcome to Leading the Rounds. Hey everyone and welcome to this episode of Leading the Rounds. We're so excited today to have two wonderful guests, Dr. Titer and Dr. Williams. Before we get into our conversation, Dr. Titer and Williams, how are you guys doing today? We're doing well. Thank you so much for having us. Yes, doing wonderful. Thank you for having us. We're super excited to be here with you. Thank you. Yeah, I'm excited to have you guys. Um, I wanted to start this conversation by just discussing your, your curriculum, which I find very fascinating and powerful, called Clearing the Air. I was wondering, what made you guys want to start this, and how did you kind of come across developing and identifying the things that were important for this curriculum and answering the need that you guys were hoping to, to answer? Yeah. Did you want me to start, Dr. Titer? I think that'd be great. Okay, wonderful. So the idea for this curriculum and um, I guess the need uh, or recognition of the need rose during my um, chief year in the internal medicine residency program. Um, we had residents who were actually submitting um, reports of patients who displayed all a spectrum of different types of behaviors um, that were would be considered disruptive in the healthcare setting. Um, and those included some macro and microaggressive behaviors as well. Um, so our program directors and other leadership um, made note of these and really asked the question, um, how can we equip our trainees and our faculty to um, address to handle these types of situations to try to mitigate um, the negative impact that they can have um, not only on delivering healthcare, but also the mental and emotional well-being um, of the physicians and providers who are attempting to provide it. So that was really where um, the idea came from. Um, the next step was to decide, you know, what has been written about these types of encounters, what are others doing? And at that time, which was 2017, 2018, there weren't very many recommendations in regards to physicians and how to respond to patients. Um, there was a lot of information about uh, that had already been published um, in workshops regarding um, physician bias um, against patients. And so this was a new arena that I'm sure you're aware of has gained a lot more attention and spotlight, and there are a lot more resources now 
now. Um, but we sort of relied on some content experts to help us come up with um, how we would address these um, types of situations, what would be the most important steps, um, and then to garner uh, support from our hospital and hospital system as well. So in the context of this initiative, what does the phrase air mean? Clear the air is a, a, I think a friendly little phrase that we came up with to help people remember how to address these micro and macro aggressive behaviors that they may encounter in the, um, in the doctor patient setting. And so uh, clear the air uh, stands for A-I-R-R, which includes assessing, identifying, responding, slash reporting the encounter. And we'd be happy to talk through some of those steps. I think before we get into that, um, mm -hmm. I'm, I guess I wasn't really, and I still don't really have a good definition of what's the difference between a macro and a microaggression. Yeah. So um, that's a lot of people don't. And so that's something <laughs> that we also address when we do this workshop. And so um, macroaggressions, which are a lot more easily identifiable than micro, right? So those are more of the overt types of behaviors, um, whether it's verbal, whether it's nonverbal behaviors that uh, really depict some type of um, negative connotation or meant to um, be biased against a particular individual because of a group that they belong to. Um, microaggressions are a little bit more difficult um, to identify. And so those can be um, intentional or unintentional, usually unintentional slights um, that really depict the same thing. So um, denote some type of negative connotation, um, highlight a stereotype, a negative stereotype about a particular group um, um, based upon some aspect of someone's identity. And so it's not just a matter of intention then, that people can have, it's, it's a matter of, I guess, bias at this point, whether or not you recognize your bias or not. And so when we're talking about microaggressions, what, how do you feel is the best way for physicians who either observe or experience microaggressions to deal with microaggressions, especially as someone who's, especially if the aggressor is un, unintentionally being microly aggressive? Sorry. <laughs> no. We made That's it a verb. We made it a verb. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love it. Um, but you're right. And, and so oftentimes, you know, as, you, as Dr. Williams mentioned, these behaviors are, um, are not intentional, but they can still be harmful. And so our clear the air model really helps uh, users of this model navigate through some of those subtleties and some of those challenges and particularly addressing microaggressive behaviors. Um, and so we start the model off by um, encouraging uh, participants to to assess the situation. So assessing the patient, um, assessing the environment, making sure that it's safe for you to have a fruitful conversation with, with the patient at that time, um, and highlighting if it's not safe, um, either for you or the patient, then to get the necessary personnel into the encounter to make sure that it is safe. Um, but lastly, assessing yourself, um, really assessing your emotions. We know that we're people too, and that uh, we bring our own biases to the, or to the patient encounter. And so really assessing that you as the provider um, will be able to have not only a fruitful, but also a respectful conversation with the patient yourself. 
um, that really helps sort of set the tone for the next step, which is then to identify. And when we ask participants to identify, we're asking them to really um, kind of narrow down on the behavior, on, on, on the intent that you think the patient has behind that comment, that microaggressive comment or behavior, um, but really taking time to listen to the patient and identify slash understand their perspective. And in our model, we give learners um, and participants the ability to use phrases that we've used in our own practice to help us identify uh, the patient's intent and perspective. So things that we've said before, Dr. Williams and I, we use all the time in our own practices. You know, I hear Mr. Jones, you are, you're saying that you are sad about the medical outcome that, that we've had during this, during this encounter. Or I hear Ms. Johnson, um, um, that you're expressing anger because we can't find a diagnosis. And so kind of identifying the, the patient's emotion um, and the source of the behavior can be a great starting point to then have that fruitful conversation um, about uh, addressing the behavior. And I would add to that too, um, Peter, to kind of um, speak a bit, bit more about what you were um, asking, um, you know, how do you address when it's a microaggressive behavior? And you're like, I don't know what they really meant. Did they, did they mean to, um, uh, you know, offend me or offend someone who was in the room? And one of the things that Dr. Retider and I encourage um, learners or people who may be at our workshop to do is to ask. Um, so Mr. Brown, you made this comment um, about me, or you asked, posed this question to me, or you asked where I'm originally from. What did you mean by that? So um, why, why are you asking that question? Um, I think, you know, the important thing about um, our framework is that we really enter with a mindset to understand the patient's perspective, but also to provide an opportunity for the providers to be understood and for their perspective to be shared as well, which we're not necessarily taught in medical school, right? Um, that you're supposed to share your feelings, your perspective um, about the encounter outside of just the medical diagnosis. Do you find that there's any difficulty when you kind of open yourself up like that to patients in terms of then kind of switching the power dynamic between the physician and the patient and maybe they changing the, the way that they might perceive you if you were saying like I guess this the thing you said made me feel this way yeah so in my experience I've never so I when I seek to understand the patient and then turn around and explain how their um, behavior has impacted me, um, particularly with regard to micro and macroaggressive behavior. You know, every situation, every patient is different. Um, but for the, the majority of cases, um, I have not seen um, a negative shift in power dynamic or where they view me any less of a, view me as a less competent physician. Um, I've, I've never had that um, type of experience. If anything, um, I've had patients who take a moment of introspection um, and I've even had patients who have apologized for the types of behaviors um, that they've displayed. Um, and aside from microaggression, so macroaggressive behaviors like um, being verbally violent, abusive, um, threatening violence, things of that nature, I've had patients actually um, apologize for those types of behaviors when boundaries, strict boundaries are actually set 
And when we're able to relay how those types of behaviors affect us and affect the care that we want to provide. I found that it really helps the patient see that I'm a person too. Mm-hmm. And that um, I'm more than just a medical provider. I'm a human being um, wanting to provide a good service to my patient. The service that I provide is, is medical care. Um, and so helping them understand how their behaviors affect me really helps them understand that there are two people in this encounter, each with our own feelings. And once again, biases that we bring and um, that just like any other uh I guess, connection that two people have in a, in a professional setting, we have to be mutually respectful. And so um, I think that really, as Dr. Williams mentioned, really helps, um, helps uh, build the doctor-patient relationship rather than um, um, bring it down, destroy it, or change um, any power shift. I think that's something that we're all afraid of though, right? Is that if we push against the grain, if we, you know, kind of call in instead of call out, call in this type of behavior um, and, you know, try to reprimand or set boundaries with our patients that it's going to, you know, ruin our rapport with the patient. And we've actually found that it it does the opposite. And, you know, when Dr. Titer was speaking about, you know, um, the step of identifying and finding the root or identifying and defining the root of the patient's behavior, um, I found that that helps the patient to feel heard too um, and to feel understood and to feel cared about um, on a deeper level when you allow them to express themselves. And when you explain, Hey, I'm here to work with you. I want to understand you, but we have to have some boundaries and some ground rules so that we can, as a team, you know, as partners and accomplish what you wish to accomplish. Have you both been able to study this in terms of how patients and doctors act after they've gone through this curriculum and make some changes in their practice? No, we actually yeah, haven't studied it. Yet. <laughs> we haven't studied that perspective of it. We have um, been able to survey our residents um, mm-hmm. to see if they feel more confident and have, have received direct feedback from them regarding their level of confidence, um, not only with taking the workshop, but I know Dr. Titer and I both have coached residents um, during their award months um, on how to handle these types of situations. But that is another great area to study. Yeah. One of the things we are, uh, we are working on right now is to develop a multimedia website where we walk participants um, through an algorithm to help them identify encounters that they've been in and give them specific uh, examples and coaching on how to address these encounters um, uh, in the future. And so with that, we hope to gain some data on um, user engagement of that website. Um, we will be creating a facilitator's guide to give um, other faculty and learners um, who are interested in teaching this material um, ways to teach it to other um, either learners or other members um, uh, of faculty that they're working with. And we want to survey those uh, people who engage with the website to see if they too feel more confident in addressing these behaviors um, in their clinical setting. So um, hopefully the website will launch. Um, our goal will be to launch it sometime this fall slash winter in 2022. Well, let us know if there's any way that we can help promote your, uh, your website and your algorithm. It sounds like a really useful tool. And I'm a big fan of gamification of medical knowledge and medical learning.
Absolutely. And I was wondering, so I'm, I was actually mostly wondering when I was reading about clearing the air, um, the article that we were pointed at was very, um, it was very directed to what we were just talking about. But does clearing the air have any space when managing uh, position-physician relationships in the workplace outside of the, 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 the clinic, or even like when you're talking in the boardroom or a research meeting? Um, and have you kind of started to work that into your curriculum in any way? Peter so can like read that. all of our, he can read all of our future yeah. plans. <laughs> you um, are spot on. Dr. Tyner and I were actually working um, mm-hmm. on uh, the script. So we're going to, a part of the website that she was speaking about, the multimodal um, resource that we're creating online um, includes different types of scenarios. And so um, this question or point um, arose in our mind as well. Um, that these types of situations occur throughout the healthcare fields, not just in the clinical setting, um, and that it becomes very interesting when, right, there's a power differential, um, or um, when you're in the boardroom, maybe with your supervisor or your colleague. And so, yes, we thought about it, and we are including those types of scenarios um, in the online um, site that we're creating right now. Um, and so we are working. So to answer your question, yes, fit the air, uh, clear the air does fit into these types of situations as well. So if you think about the background or the foundation um, of the model, um, it's, it's, it's about communicating and entering with a, a heart and a mind, ears to listen and to understand to the other person, um, not necessarily to agree with perspectives. Um, but to, to be understood and to seek to understand the other person and attempt to achieve um, some way to move forward, um, whether that's with a supervisor, whether that's with a patient, whether that's with a colleague. Um, and sometimes that's not, uh, um, that does not occur. Um, and we provide some resources on how you debrief, report, or move forward after that as well. So I became interested in this. Um, just because one, one, when Caleb and I talk about things in the podcast, we're mostly working on how to be a better leader of physicians as a physician trainee. And so I read an article today that was very much, it highlighted microaggressions and potentially macroaggressions as a leadership issue. And so the story that I read um, was part of an investigation by STAT. And they highlighted the story about this um, otolaryngology resident named Rosanja Daywalker. And so she was your typical otolaryngology resident in the fact that she was very, she's excelling in all her classes, did very well in medical school, and she matched. Um, and maybe as you can pick up by her name, she was a black woman. When she started her residency, she was doing very well. But as soon as the director of her program had left and there was a new director who began their tenure there, she started feeling less safe. And she started feeling um, that she wasn't welcome as much as she used to be. Uh, she was demoted, she had taken medical leave. And, and it really highlighted to me that this was nothing wrong with her, but it was mostly a leadership problem. And so I wanted to know, one, what would you say to Miss Daywalker? And then two, what would you say to this new uh, leader of her program in terms of how to, they could have maybe cleared the air better and retained the, she ended up being, I forget what the term was, um, uh, discharged but it was discharged forcefully and not because she was fired but because her scores were too low um Hmm. and the whole point of the investigation was saying that in these competitive specialties black residents make up 
a minority of people, but are a majority of, or a larger percentage of people who are driven out of these residencies as they are um, going through them. And so I was hoping you guys could comment a little bit about like what you would want to say to both the residents as well as the res residency leaders in terms of uh, making these programs safer and so we can start to cultivate more diversity among these very highly competitive specialties. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, thank you for bringing that story up. I haven't personally read the article myself. Um, so I, I can't comment on the details of it, but I, what I will say is that um, part of the work that Dr. Williams and I do in addition to creating curriculum like this to help all trainees um, address micro and macroaggressive behaviors from patients um, in addition to that, we also spend quite a bit of deal of time um, working with our residents to make sure that they understand that we are here as faculty um, um, to support them, not only uh, professionally and clinically, but also personally as well. And so part of our work as directors of diversity for the UAB, um, University of Alabama, Tinsley Harrison Internal Medicine Residency Program is to um, provide mentorship for them. And so we, we have uh, check-ins twice a year to make sure that they're happy, whole, know that they're supported, um, provide them with resources if they aren't feeling that way, um, making sure that they're meeting um, not necessarily their clinical milestones, but their own personal milestones in their life, um, their own goals. And so, um, I guess my answer to your question um, would be is that for the institution, first and foremost, is to really invest in faculty who are who are interested and willing to do that type of work. It's a it's a time consuming work. It's not often a work that is um, financially supported. Thankfully, at UAB, you know, we are supported in that respect, but it's a necessary work. Um, and we do it um, because we love and, and enjoy working with the residents and letting them know that they, they have a. Um, a family of faculty here um, wanting them to succeed. Uh, for the resident, I would say, um, I know it's challenging with a busy clinical schedule to, to seek out faculty to provide that support. And I don't know if this young lady um, um, had faculty around to do that, but um, one of the things I, I love about our residents is that oftentimes if there is something going on, some, some issue that they've come up against, if anything, or any concern, any question that they have, they have our cell numbers, um, they have our emails and they reach out to us to let us know how we can support them. And that's helpful for me um, so that I know if there's there's anything that they need me for um, that they don't hesitate to reach out. Um, and I hope um, that other institutions um, will set that precedence and that um, residents will, will, um, will be in an environment where that is available to them. Yeah. And I would add a couple of things. So um, unfortunately, these stories uh, or stories like this one are not rare um, in some institutions, um, which is really sad. Um, and I have not read this article, but based upon the information that you've provided to me, this resident has worked incredibly hard um, to get to that point. Um, you know, Dr. Tyler and I work in diversity, equity, and inclusion realm, and macro and microaggressions um, are a part of that, and cultivating inclusive environments are a part of that. I would say not only to whether it's the program director, the chair of the department, or even institutional leaders at a higher level, um, that this work is not just about a number. So you can't have diversity 
meaning bringing people into your residency program, um, into your division or your department um, without uh, having a plan of how to support them. Um, and what I mean by that is creating an environment that is inclusive um, and that is equitable um, and determining what that means in your program. Um, that means mentorship, sponsorship. That means um, supporting them, as Dr. Titer was saying, not only as a developing physician or a practicing physician, um, but also as a person, because that plays into their practice of medicine um, and who they show up as um, when they're at work. And so, you know, that would be one of the things that I would say is, you know, have you surveyed your environment? Um, why is why is this resident um, having difficulty? Has anyone asked about that? And what role does the organization play um, in the resident's difficulty, but also in their success? So helping them to succeed. I think the goal is always to graduate from residency as a competent, fulfilled physician. And it's our goal to make sure that our residents are able to do that, that they're successful at that. Um, what I would say to the resident would be, um, and I, I, I say this often um, to our residents when we're mentoring them or we have a session and something has arisen. And I usually tell them, I said, you know, you have not been selected to be a part of this program because someone felt sorry for you. Um, you have worked incredibly hard to be here. Um, we know that you can do the work. I would apologize. I, I would want to hear the specific things that are going on, but also apologize that this is the environment, right? This is a cultural problem um, that they're in. Um, but instead of always giving ideas, I'd want to hear from the resident, what do you think could make this a better environment for you and your colleagues and those coming up after you? Because our trainees have so many fantastic ideas uh, about how to make things better. Um, but you know, I, I would ask those questions, but also work with them to seek out individuals who could be their mentors, mm -hmm. um, who could be their sponsors. And I think aside from that, you also need someone who can kind of be a shield for you in these types of situations. So who should they report to? Um, who can kind of be a buffer and work with that person that's in the supervisory role um, in these types of situations to advocate for the residents? So I'm not sure if, if she had, that advocate, um, but those would be the things that I would want to address. Those are some fantastic replies. And I think it brings us to the last topic we wanted to talk about in the interview today, which is occupational wellness. And so I wanna hear from you guys, what do you guys think creates a culture where physicians can feel fulfilled and they can practice in an environment where they can maintain their health and wellness? And what creates a culture of occupational health? So, you know, for me, occupational wellness, um, if I had to describe it, would be synergy between being in a career that you enjoy, providing value to the people that you're serving, whether that be patients, learners, other faculty and leadership roles, and having wellness where you're able to engage in those first two activities while balancing your own self-care. If those three things align, I would consider that to be occupational wellness. And that is really hard to achieve in the uh, medical slash academic setting. There are always so many demands on us um, and it, it makes it challenging to 
have all three things align at the same time at all times. Um, some people have transitioned out of using the term um, work-life balance um, because oftentimes things get a little imbalanced and that's okay. Um, but I really do believe occupational wellness is, is having those align as best as possible, as often as possible, um, and having the support um, from your leadership um, to, to provide you with the opportunities to have that align as, as much as you can. I completely agree with that definition and um, you um, added what was going to be my port, my point. Um, I, I think it's different for everybody. It looks different um, for everyone. Um, but I would say it, it is um, crucial for you to have the support of leadership, um, mentorship, as well as sponsorship, right? Um, um, to achieve occupational wellness. And a culture at your at your institution that allows for that too, because sometimes you get a little off off kilter um, when you're pursuing those passions and maybe that service and not really paying enough attention to your own wellness. So um, to the detriment of your own wellness. So there has to be a culture that values um, that type of balance or flex um, mm -hmm. as well. Yeah, I'll just add briefly too. culture is, is crucial because even if you are achieving what you consider to be occupational wellness, but there's this undertone that you need to be doing more, then it's always going to be at odds fighting against your own definition, your own achievement of occupational wellness. So there really needs to be leadership support and an institutional culture um, that those three things that I mentioned are, are aligned as much as possible. Thank you so much for that. Um, I really appreciate your time and your insight today. We like to end our episodes with two questions for all of our interviewees. The first being, do you have any advice or what is your advice to young medical leaders? That's a great question. There's so much. Um, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> I know. One Does that thing? have to be one thing? It could be more than one thing. <laughs> um, let's see. I can, I can start if you'd like. Okay, um, I actually uh, have this um, written um, on my desk in my office. Um, and uh, it's a saying that says, um, you should work to, to see the best in everyone, um, but, uh, but never be afraid to challenge them um, as well. So, you know, as leaders, see the best, your, your, your job is to see the best or see the potential. I think that is what has made, um, what I've recognized in great leaders as well is being able to see the potential um, in me, um, even when I can't, couldn't see it uh, myself. So see the best, see the potential in those that you're training up um, and never be afraid to challenge them, to push them beyond their comfort zone. Um, always be the example. Um, remember that people are watching you, um, whether it's your own trainees, um, whether it's your colleagues, um, be the example of the culture and the environment that you wish um, to be in and that you wish to cultivate for your patients as well. I think the thing that I would leave um, those listening to this podcast um, is, I went to a small college in Huntsville, Alabama called Oakwood University. And um, the motto of the school um, was enter to learn, depart to serve. And so, 
that really stuck with me throughout my years. And I come back to that time and time again, as I'm in the midst of serving um, those that I come in contact with. And so my, my advice would be you enter medical school um, or whatever level of training you're entering to learn, but once you depart your training, always have a mindset of service, um, serving your patients, um, excellent care, serving your colleagues and faculty that you work with um, in support, um, serving your learners with um, great uh, education, mentorship, sponsorship, et cetera. Um, always have a mindset to serve. And I think many of us have gone into medicine wanting to help people and, um, with that desire to help comes, I believe, a heart of service for all of those that we come in contact with. So always keep that in mind in the forefront as um, there'll be a lot of things that, uh, um, that one may encounter throughout their experiences that um, can be challenging, but if you keep your heart and your mind set on service, um, it, it helps you get through those tough times and, and brings you back to the reason you chose medicine. Absolutely love that. And I'll add one more thing. Sure. I think this is you, get, probably, you only get one, Carly. <laughs> he said that I can have multiple. <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know, this is probably something that's near and dear to my heart, even more so than the first um, statement. And I think Dr. Titer would agree with her. This may be near and dear to her as well. This is a part of what we do. Um, we always talk about medicine constantly evolving and changing. Um, we don't talk about culture of medicine doing that as much, right? Um, but I think that now we're in a time, we have been in a time um, where the culture of medicine is changing. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, we're not afraid of medicine changing, um, but I would tell them, don't be afraid to go against the grain a little bit um, and be a part of the culture change too. So that the next generation of physicians that come up um, can have it a little bit easier. Um, that they may not have to jump through the same hurdles that we have had to jump through, um, that they don't have to be subjected to um, the same types of maybe treatment and things that we have been subjected to without having the appropriate uh, training and guidance in that regard. Mm -hmm. um, so do, yes, be a fantastic doctor, be a fantastic mentor, sponsor, and leader, but also be about the change too. Um, do the work because it's going to take all of us. That was fantastic. Thank you guys both so much for speaking with Peter and I today. The last question we always like to ask is, what are some of your favorite books and books that have influenced your life and how you lead others and how you are a physician in medicine? Mine is like not necessarily going to be like a traditional leadership book. It can be <laughs> as an everything book. Um, but to be honest with you, um, the, the work that has had the most impact on me as a person, um, because I think being a whole person, um, being a fulfilled person makes me um, a good leader, makes me a good doctor. Um, mm -hmm. So I would have to say my Bible, um, you know, doing my devotion, um, really studying for me what it means to be a Christian um, and a follower of Christ, those characteristics and qualities. Um, has taught me patience, which I am not a patient person, um, but has taught me patience, um, has also given me or helped me to develop that heart and that mind um, uh, and the ears to listen and to attempt to understand the other person. Um, so I would say for me, 
um, that has been um, a leadership book uh, that I have really rested on um, and has guided me and helped me to grow a lot. Oof, you stole mine, Dr. Williams. Uh-oh. Um, <laughs> that's okay. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, so certainly I would say um, uh, similarly, that would be my go-to book. Um, it's just ripe with um, different ways to um, communicate and to connect with people. And as I mentioned at the beginning of this session is that we're all human and we're two people coming to an encounter to, to um, find a way to, to make a patient better. Um, and so at the end of the day, um, I don't think there's a better book to really understand and, and gain insight on, on how to navigate through human interactions. Um, I think in addition to that, uh, one of the other books that I've read that I, I really enjoy was um, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Really great book to kind of understand um, with the opportunities that we have as physicians and the, the roles that we have in different areas, clinical care, service, mentorship, et cetera. How do you really, um, how do you really, uh, uh, work to be effective in providing um, services in each of those roles, each of those hats that, that we wear. Um, and so it's been a really great book for me to, to read and, and uh, apply it to my medical and academic career. Yeah, that was also one of my favorite books of all time. I read it once a year. <laughs> awesome. uh, just to kind of realign myself. <laughs> Very nice. But I would add to that, you know, any, any, you know, books, workshops, podcasts that you can read about communication as well. I mm -hmm. think we tend to think that we are the best communicators. Um, however, um, there's always room for improvement. So I think one of the books that was recommended to us is Difficult Conversations with Difficult mm -hmm. People, um, which is a phenomenal book that really talks about um, communicating in difficult situations, which is what leaders have to do um, or have to mediate. So um, that would be an area that I would recommend that our future leaders in medicine um, would take some time to study as well. well. Thank you so much for those recommendations. I'm really grateful for your guys' time today, um, especially on this auspicious day. Uh, and I hope that you guys had just as much fun as I did. Oh, yeah, this was awesome. Thank you so much for inviting us. Thank you so much for having us. It was really a pleasure um, and happy Juneteenth. Happy Juneteenth.